Well, Psalm 66, in the Word of God, You know, I need your prayers from week to week as I seek to try to tell you what each of these psalms are saying. Uh, there's a reason why people don't preach through them one after another. And the reason why is because it is very, very difficult. And my dad all the time used to say growing up, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And uh, that's the way it is. I need your prayers. This is one of those uh, Psalms where there is a lot in these short 20 verses and it's a situation where you know you just pick out what you can and uh, and the Lord leads and guides but I do want to begin by showing you a connecting point there's several connecting points in these Psalms the last verse of Psalm 65 look at your Bible Psalm 65 in verse 13 the Bible said, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. The scripture said that the meadows and the valleys sing together to God with great joy. But then I also want you to notice a common theme that is almost a continuation, and it really is a continuation of this 65th Psalm right here in Psalm 66 and verse 1 and 2. He said, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Now, you have these themes of singing and shouting to God um, in Psalm number 65 and also now in song, no, Psalm number 66. Now what does this mean? In Psalm 65, it is creation that is singing praises to God. But Psalm 66 is about human beings singing praise to God. I want to show you an interesting feature of these two great psalms. The, the difference between nature and creation and human beings is it's a small difference, but it's a striking difference. And it is this. While human beings have to be trained and encouraged and commanded to praise God, Nature doesn't have to. Nature sings the praise creation, praises God, and it doesn't have to be commanded to do that. It just does it. Human beings, on the other hand, who are God's greatest and highest creation, human beings have to be instructed, admonished, encouraged and commanded to praise God. Why is that? Well, it is because human beings are fundamentally sinful. Human beings are fallen creatures that live in a world that is in fact fallen. Psalm 66 tells us that we need to give thanks and praise to God just like the psalmist who wrote this great hymn. 
I have just two points this morning, if you, if you can believe that. Uh, point number one is simply two trajectories. Two trajectories, or you could say directions or movements. Two movements or trajectories this morning. But then our second point is worldwide praise to God, which really is the theme of Psalm 66, as we're going to get moving through the psalm here in a moment. Now, this first point purposefully encompasses the entire psalm. You'll see that as we move forward. But the second point is verses 1 through 7, worldwide praise to God, verses 1 through 7. So I want to show you the two great and distinct trajectories, the directions, the movements of Psalm number 66. There's two of them. The first one is that Psalm 66, or praise, P-R-A-I-S-E, praise in the 66th Psalm moves from macro to micro. That is to say that it's both telescopic and microscopic. Praise in Psalm number 66 moves from the large scale to the small scale. But then secondly, praise in Psalm 66 alternates from being offered up to God and then others are invited to join in to that psalm of praise. So you'll have praise being offered to God in one passage and then in the next passage, the psalmist invites other people to praise in the passage. And I will break that down for you when we get there. But first, I want to show you macro and micro praise. Macro and micro praise. Notice with me verses 1 and verses 8 of this great psalm. He said, shout with joy to God, all the earth. But then in verse number 8, he said, Praise our God, O peoples. But then I want to show you micro-praise. He says in verse 13 of Psalm number 65, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Now what does this mean? Psalm 66 moves from the entire earth praising God, to Israel praising God, to the psalmist praising God. The 66th Psalm moves from the big picture of praise all the way to the itty bitty picture of praise. You have the entire earth praising God's name. But then even smaller still, the circle gets slightly smaller within the circle, as we'll see just in a moment. And Israel, as a nation, praises God. But it's not just the earth that praises God. It's not just Israel that praises God. But then you have the personal pronoun. He said, I, in verse 13. It's the psalmist. It moves from corporate praise to individual praise, from macro to micro. This psalm begins with the large scale and narrows to the small scale. It is like, as the great Dr. Boyce notes, the symphony of Franz Joseph Haydn. 
Symphony number 45 in F sharp minor is entitled The Farewell Symphony. Listen to this note. Quote, the reason this piece is called the Farewell Symphony is that it develops with the entire orchestra on the platform. But then as the piece develops, the various sections of the orchestra and its members get up one by one and leave the platform until at the very end only two violinists are left. When the piece was first performed in Vienna in 1772, as each instrumentalist finished his part, he blew out a lantern that was at his place to illuminate the music. So as the musicians left, the lights went out too. This is what the 66th Psalm is like. It's similar in to Franz Joseph Hayden's Symphony Number no. 45 in that it moves from the entire earth to national Israel all the way down to a singular individual and all of them are praising God. But this psalm is dissimilar in a way because instead, and as our brains are wired and as we would think, as the psalm narrows from global praise to national praise to individual praise, the praise does not diminish as it does in symphony in the 45th in the farewell symphony. But rather, as the psalmist praises God on the individual level, the praise builds in intensity and in passion. The psalmist's intense passion shines through rather than diminishes. It is the opposite effect of the symphony number 45. Now, what does this mean? What, how does this apply to us today? Well, just like people who lived many years ago in ancient Israel, we think that some of the greatest praise occurs in corporate worship. And sometimes we feel like we may not even be able to praise God unless we're with our brothers and sisters in a group singing the hymns of faith, offering up maybe if you go to a liturgical church, repeating the liturgy for that week, or whatever it is that your uh, faith tradition allows for. And we kind of get this feeling or this thinking in our head that the only way that we can properly praise God is when we are in a group. And Psalm 66 is written, one of the great teachings of this psalm, is written to remind us that the greatest praise happens on the personal level. Let me show you what I mean. Notice in verse number 13 where I mentioned it picks up with personal and individual praise. I want to read you several of these verses. I will come, this verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. 
If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Now, this is what is so fascinating about this 66th Psalm. Is that the greatest and most powerful declaration of praise does not happen on the global level. It doesn't happen on the national level, but it happens on the personal level. What does this mean? We're going to talk about this in the next point. I want to show you the second trajectory of Psalm number 66. It's that praise alternates from being offered up to God and then an invite for others to join in. In verses 1 through 4, praise is offered up to God from the entire earth. But then in verses 5 through 7, notice verse 5, come and see what God has done. You have an invite for everyone to come and see what God is doing. Verses 8 through 12, praise is offered to God by the covenant people Israel. Then in verses 13 through 15, the psalmist offers personal praise to God through sacrifices. But did you see what happens in the 16th verse? You have another invitation. And this invitation is being given to the entire earth again. What does this mean? In verses 16 through 20, the entire earth is invited to hear what God has done for the psalmist. Well, what has God done for the psalmist? God has covered and pardoned and forgiven and atoned and redeemed the psalmist from his or her sins. That's why this individual praise is so powerful and so passionate. So, in the first verse, it begins with worldwide praise to God. But then, as you move through the psalm, the trajectory moves all the way back around, and it ends with worldwide praise to God. Now, the last time I looked up into, at the moon, for example, the moon and the earth, to see them in the sky, they're round. And this circular trajectory, this silical motion, suggests that the greatest witness, what will cause human beings of the earth to praise God? It is the miracle, it is the grace of God, it is the atonement of God that God has bestowed on the psalmist. In other words, how can we help the world to praise God? Well, we can offer up personal thanksgiving and personal praise to God for the sacrifice that has been offered for us, for the pardon, for the redemption, for the salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. If you want to see the world of sinners praising God, then what that must mean is we must be involved in this great act of worship in praising God. This is a circular, this is the idea that's being put forth is this silical motion. 
It's never ending. It's a circle of praise. It begins with the earth praising God and it ends with the earth praising God. And how is the earth going to praise God? By the people of God worshiping, loving, thanking, praising the Lord for the redemption, the salvation that God has given to them and the blood of the sacrifice, the offering and the atonement that God has provided. This is important because Generally, we think of worldwide missions and evangelism as good people going off to some faraway place to tell bad people about how they can go to heaven when they die. And that's not at all what worldwide missions and evangelism is about, at least not in the 66th Psalm. In Psalm 66, the praise, the individual and personal, powerful and passionate praise that our psalmist offers up to God, it has global, worldwide implications. Somebody says, I want to see the unsaved peoples of planet Earth come to redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, you must be praising God for redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ as a witness and testimony to them. This is a circle of praise. It is a silical motion. But secondly, you have worldwide praise to God. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that all the earth, in verse number one, it's not just that that he says it. He says it several times, all the earth, throughout this great psalm. What's clear about Psalm 66 is that Psalm 66 looks to all peoples of the earth to offer up praise and thanksgiving to God. But there's a problem with this. Somebody stands in their way. I wonder who's standing in the way of the world worshiping and praising God. Well, if you study your Old Testament long enough, you'll find that the nation of Israel stood in God's way. They weren't doing what God wanted them to do. In fact, one of the great and powerful passages of God rebuking his people Israel is found in none other book than the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, the minor prophet, God sends a humble, God-fearing farmer. You might be able to relate to a humble, God-fearing farmer or two. And God sends a farmer named Amos to go and bring a message to some of the most powerful political leaders of his day. And one of the things that Amos says, one of the things that God uses Amos to tell his people Israel in the Old Testament is they were not showing love and mercy and compassion and justice to the people that they were supposed to be reaching. In this way, Israel had an exclusivist mentality. Israel thought that the promises of God, the redemption, the salvation, the goodness, the grace, the covenants of God, Israel had a fatal flaw in their thinking. They thought that was only for them. 
They were supposed to be reaching the Gentile people with the truth and the glory of who God was. But instead, Israel had become extremely exclusive. When Jesus Christ comes to the earth, this is one of the great things that he rebukes them for. Paul the Apostle also rebukes national Israel for not showing compassion and mercy to the Gentiles. In fact, God was so upset that the Jewish people were not showing love and mercy and grace and compassion to the nations that surrounded them that he allowed them to be carried away into captivity by the Assyrian armies never to be heard from again. One of the great passages in the book of Amos is Amos tells Israel, he says, let justice, let mercy, let it roll down like the waters. The idea is a waterfall of compassion, a waterfall of mercy, a waterfall of grace roaring, spilling over, spilling out onto the nations that surrounded Israel. But they would not. Instead, they showed injustice to the Gentiles and they were judged righteously by God. Remember the heart of God for the Gentile people. The Gentile people are everybody that's not a Hebrew. Remember the purpose of the nation of Israel was clearly revealed in the promise of the Lord, which he made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We reference this all the time. I want to remind you of this great passage. He said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was the first Hebrew. Did you know that? There were no Hebrews, there were no Jews, there was no Israel before Abraham. And at the very founding of the Hebrew people, the very first Jewish man that was ever to live, the man Abraham, God tells him, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your family a blessing to all the other families of planet earth. He said, in you, Abraham, shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, who is this blessing of the nations? In Galatians chapter 3, we find that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the seed of Abraham that would come and bless the nations. Therefore, Psalm 65, Psalm 66, 67, and 68 all are written so that the world would praise and glorify God and not just Israel. This is the great themes of Psalm 65 through 68. It is not just that Israel, God's people, praise God, 
But the psalmists are looking forward into the future and they're looking at a time when God would bless the nations and the nations would shout with joy and praise to God and they would be a part of God's covenant, all families of the earth. But here's the reality, and it's a sad reality. It's found in verse number 5. It's actually in verse number 5 and also in verse number 16. He says, come and see what God has done. The fact that human beings have to be invited and commanded, really, to come and see what God has done betrays the reality that human beings don't come to God to praise Him. The problem here is that no one, no human being, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl praises God on his or her own. And the reason the Bible gives us for this is found in Romans chapter 1 verses 20 and 21. I'll quote it for you here. He said, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here is the sad reality, is that a world that is being called upon to praise God is a world full of sinners. And sinners do not come to God to praise him. They do not come to give God thanks on their own accord. Verse number six, look at this. It says, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we, talking about Israel, rejoice in Him. We have an impressive God, don't we? How impressive is He? In verse six, the psalmist recalls two great miracles that God performed. The first miracle is found in the first line of Psalm 66 and verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. They pat and So this is speaking of God's miracle of the parting of the Red Sea with the children of Israel. But then there's a second great miracle. Both of them have to do with water. They passed through the river on foot. So this is speaking of God's miracle for the children of Israel when they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. You remember the Lord caused the dam to cause the water to not flow through the rest of the river and the children of Israel walked across the river on dry ground. So here you have two miracles. What does this mean? There were many people in the ancient world who witnessed the miracles that God performed for His people. There were hundreds of thousands of people who witnessed the miracles that God did in Egypt. There were millions of people throughout the history of Israel who witnessed the many and powerful miracles that God did for His people. 
But very few of them were actually moved to turn from their idolatry and worship the God of Israel alone. This is how it works. Just because someone is impressed by God, that does not mean that they know God. Here's an illustration. Hurricane Katrina made landfall off the coast of Louisiana on August 29, 2005. It hit land as a Category 3 storm with winds reaching speeds as high as 120 miles per hour. Because of the ensuing destruction and loss of life, the storm is often considered one of the worst in U.S. history. An estimated 1,200 people died as a direct result of the storm, which also cost an estimated $108 billion in property damage, making it the costliest storm on record. I can remember after Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana, there were many people who said, maybe God is trying to tell us something. Or maybe this is God's judgment on America. How many people after great catastrophes have ever heard somebody say something like that on the news even? On the radio? Maybe you've been around somebody else that has said, what's God trying to tell us? Is this God's judgment on us? But here it is. There's a big difference between someone being impressed by something God has done and that same someone falling on their knees and on their face and worshiping, honoring, loving, praising, and glorifying that same God. You see, all the people who witnessed the terrible storm in Louisiana in 2005, many of them had God on their mind. And they even had God in their conversations. But that, that, but that does not mean that they actually repented and confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. It is altogether possible for someone to say, look at Psalm 66 and verse 3, how awesome are your deeds and yet never be truly born again. Lots of people are awestruck at natural disasters. Lots of people are in stricken. Lots of people are, may I say, impressed by what God does and allows. Many secularists, many atheists, Social Darwinians, evolutionists, they're impressed by the creation, but they do not know the Creator. And may I ask you, what is greater, the creation or the Creator who made it all? Would be to God that we would not just be impressed that we would not just be awestruck, 
but that we would fall on our knees and fall on our faces and we would repent and exercise saving faith in the God of the gospel, in the God of creation. In conclusion, acts of God, acts of God are sudden unexpected events that can't be controlled or protected against. Act of God insurance refers to any kind of insurance that protects against these events. When it comes to car insurance, act of God insurance sometimes refers to comprehensive coverage. For homeowner's insurance, you're protected against some acts of God, such as wind with a standard policy, while others, like flooding, require a special endorsement. You and I may be able to buy insurance which protects our material possessions from so-called acts of God. But no earthly insurance can buy or save us from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against sinners. Only the blood of a sinless offering and sacrifice can save us and can redeem us, not from acts of God in nature, but from the wrath of God against sinful sinners. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and that He lived a perfect and sinless life. And on crucifixion day, Jesus Christ took our place and suffered the wrath and condemnation of His own Father on our behalf. And that all who call upon his name and ask for forgiveness will be born again, will pass from death to life, and will be eternally saved. Would be to God that we would just not be, that we would not just be impressed and awestruck at what God has done in the life of someone else but that we would fall before this God and that we would cry out to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness and the pardon of our sins. And we would be restored to a right relationship with God. And as a redeemed people, we would live out our lives daily for His glory and for His grace and to sing his praises and to tell others, like the psalmist, of the great things which God hath done for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for, as Brother Tom prayed, the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior. And really, Lord, that is how we are free this morning. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this solemn time of self-examination 
of reflection on who you are and what you have done and the sacrifice that you have made. I pray, Lord, that you would bless your people as they go. And we thank you, Lord, for the greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life in Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.